to comment on food. Right, okay. Um, yeah, then. Let's so, started. Let's, let's go. Hello, I'm Tim. I'm James. And you're listening to QuasiCast. So, um, today we're discussing a, uh, a legitimate paper, a, a paper that was published in the journal Nature, no less, probably one of the most uh, prestigious scientific journals in the world. Um, it's been all over the news over the last week, um, and it has quite a striking title, which I will quickly read out. So uh, the title is Global Human Made Mass Exceeds All Living Biomass, painting a picture perhaps of a rather cyberpunk 2077 future, perhaps, or maybe even a Blade Runner future, towering skyscrapers, endless Las Vegas deserts. Yes, I think that's the image that they're they're trying to cover, uh, conjure up. Certainly, um, the um, although yes, let's not jump to conclusions about their intentions yet. But no, um, of course, yeah. Essentially, uh, if I may summarise, um, they have used uh, existing data about uh, the amount of mass that humans have modified in some way, um, whether that be uh, extracting. Um, oil from the ground in a, in, a, in a mechanism which we understand to be problematic, or uh, perhaps more benignly, um, quarrying rocks from the ground and making gravel, or uh, making cl- mining clay and making bricks. Uh, all of that is included in the metric which they call anthropogen- uh, uh, anthropogenic mass, um, and they compare it to uh, the total ma- what's called biomass, uh, which is well uh, in this in in their definition is all living things excluding marine animals uh, and excluding humans um, uh, minus the water which might be contained within mm. those bodies, um, and uh, they make the assertion that uh, if you track these two quantities over time, that uh, they are uh, intersect around 2020 plus or minus six years mm-hmm. um uh, and that's uh, that's 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 broadly the conclusion of the paper or certainly the findings of the paper anyway mm-hmm. so yeah indeed the the paper concludes that we are at a crossover point they put it where well it's difficult to pin down to be honest exactly what the conclusions of the paper are and we'll probably get into that later but certainly the feeling the the interpretation that's been expressed in the many many articles that have covered this is that earth is at a a tipping point a, a point where anthropogenic mass the impact of human activity is overtaking biological life on earth and that this uh, marks a, a a change in the character of the planet um they make a uh, a parallel between the transition from the holocene epoch um the 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 most recent epoch geological epoch of earth into the anthropocene which is a, ter- a term they didn't coin but it's a term that has gained traction recently uh the idea that there is a we are currently in a geological epoch which is defined by human activity and that if yes. at some theoretical point in the future uh geologists were to look back over the geological record they would find some kind of discontinuity corresponding to to this era the, this specific point in time uh similar to that which is found in rocky strata 
at the Permian-Triassic extinction, for example, major changes in the biological makeup of Earth. Yes, and I, I don't think necessarily there's a huge amount of controversy around that definition of that term. No. Um, you know, I, it's, 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 uh, there are many physical metrics which you can clearly delineate uh, sort of, you know, a before and after, before which, or after which humans are, ha- are making a clear mark. I mean, the classic example is uh, radiocarbon dating, uh, mm-hmm. which is, you know, prior to 1953 or whatever it was. I can't remember exactly when. Certainly the 1950s. Was it the first nuclear, first test? Uh, first open air test? So that I think it was no. the first nuclear test. The Trinity test. Yeah. Well, the first one was Little Boy. Um, I thought it was uh, Trinity was the very first live test. Uh, what, the one the first, during the World first, War II? Well, the, the first um, detonation, I think, uh, was was Little Boy. But the, mm. the very first test of... Uh, of an actual bomb i think was the trinity test okay maybe it's from then i always thought it was in the 50s for some reason but yes prior to that um uh, you can radiocarbon date things whereas after that um the uh, noise in the measurement um due to the uh due to the presence of um well, radioactive trace elements effectively mm-hmm. from from these tests uh, uh, it means that the, you, you can't date anything after the after that yeah. date or it after gets that very period. confused and of course uh, that has a generation generational impact as well because every generation born after the trinity test has a uh, higher rate of strong unstable strontium isotopes in our bones which means that mm. we are fundamentally different in our chemical makeup to every human generation that's gone before like an x-man indeed yes yeah. if only it gave us superpowers rather than just yeah. cancer uh, <laughs> uh, right sorry slight 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 yeah a bit of a deviation slight tangent there, there. um but I, what i'm curious about james is well, well as a starting point anyway we can get into the details of the science in a little bit but what i'm really uh curious about is people's reactions to this paper it's it's a very striking title and it certainly seems to have grabbed people's imagination um so far i think i've read personally i've read five different articles discussing this across different british newspapers um and i've seen numerous um news alerts cropping up uh in my feed over the past couple of days but obviously we're slightly more cynical i suppose about some of these things than than perhaps uh many people would be but simply because we've been trained to be cynical about academic papers i feel like uh whilst you know after that 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 statement i should uh just clarify for the listener that um both tim and i are well aware of the serious nature of uh climate change the man-made impact on the earth and that when he says uh, we are cynical uh, about such things what he means is we are cynical about uh, the the way in which the science was conducted, um, and the the, mo- uh, the the reasoning behind the choice of of, of the direction of the paper uh, and the assertions that they made, rather than the the broad assertion that uh, you know humans are are, are having a uh, too great of an impact uh, yeah. on the planet. No, certainly. I mean, if if anyone is listening to this and they're hoping that we're going to somehow debunk climate change i'm afraid you're in the wrong place both james and i are along with the rest of the scientific world are completely agreed that anthropogenic climate change is is real and is a crisis but that doesn't mean that every scientific paper written in that area of inquiry is necessarily valid and it's important to scrutinize science with a neutral outlook 
and determine its efficacy as yes. independently as possible. And that is what scientists are trained to do. Um, yes, and I, I, I do also feel like well, we'll, we'll touch on this uh, in the second half of the podcast. But you know, the it's it's papers that get a profile such as this, uh, i.e., very high, hmm. uh, are uh, saddled, shouldered with a greater responsibility Indeed. to make sure that not only the science they're doing is correct, and as we'll we'll find that that the work they have done is not technically incorrect. Um, uh, you know, the choice of work that they do and that they promote uh, is important because, mm. you know, they could use the platform that they have, which inevitably they have got it in this case, to make more meaningful uh, discoveries about the nature of, you know, the human impact on, on Earth. Indeed, um, yeah. And yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm curious about the emotional impact of this paper. I don't know what your initial reaction on reading this headline was James? I don't know if you sort of uh, immediately started sort of finding the the errors, or or if it hit you with perhaps the uh, the sledgehammer that it seems to have hit a lot of people. Well, I mean, you know, it seems like every other day there's an article about how we're reaching a tipping point, whether it's climate change. Well, it's mainly climate change, yeah. um, you know, and that you know we're past the point of no return. We're just before the point of no return, um, and uh, you know independent of the veracity of the claims uh it's 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 intense an emotional experience to read such a thing and in a similar way I, that's kind of how i felt when i first read the with the read the title of this paper because you know it's 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 bold you know it mm -hmm. says it says that we have you know it's it's the all living biomass you know that that that, that those three words are you know have a totality to them which is uh, which is you know disturbing it is um, it's certainly frightening and in your mind it certainly conjures up a terrifying image uh one where you know sort of a vast ecumenopolis swamps you know earth's forests and and leaves nothing but concrete in its wake that is certainly the image that was conjured up in my mind when i read that and being someone who's very concerned about climate change it hit me with panic to be honest yeah. uh reading this and it's interesting you know we talk about like you said, we talk about tipping points a lot in, in climate science, and I don't want to get into a, a deep discussion about climate science because this isn't the, the time. Um, well, it is the time, but it, neither of us are in... Our, our, we haven't spent the, the last week reading about climate science, so we'd be uninformed at best. But it is interesting that the idea of tipping points is a example of how scientific communication changes the way that people think. At the moment, it's quite normal and, and, and quite common for people to talk about tipping points in Earth's climate. But that idea is the product of a paper like this, a high-profile paper which gained traction in news, namely the paper Deep Adaptation, um, which first popularised the notion of extreme tipping points. So yes. I guess what you're saying is that while, of course, we want to treat, you know, with the appropriate severity, research into climate change or the impact of, of human activity on, on the planet, it's vitally important that, that we scrutinize this work because our emotional reactions to work like this tend to be very strong and can often overwhelm our, you know, more rational instincts. Yes. Is that fair? 
I think that is fair. Um, and um, yeah, I think yeah. I confess though quickly after having read the title and then begin began reading uh, uh, the abstract and, and and the rest of the paper, um, it became apparent that uh, there were some odd choices, shall we say, um, of quantities that they were comparing mm-hmm. um and uh, yeah i just i can't quite understand uh why they decided to compare the two quantities that they did um and you know i think now you know we can we can begin to yeah pick apart uh uh what what's problematic with this paper well let's start maybe with a bit of a dissection of what the paper actually says because as is as is rather inevitable with something that achieves this level of traction. I mean, this paper was published on the 9th of December, and I'm looking right now at the uh, at its page on the Nature website. And on Altmetric currently, which is a indicator of how many times it's been reported in uh, the global press, it's currently reached 4,046 in four days. Wow. So to put that in some perspective, um, something like the paper Discovering Graphene achieved that kind of score in Altmetric over several months. And this has achieved yes. it in four days. Yes, I mean... Now, it's ultimately... not to say that in the long term it will have a bigger impact than the Graphene paper and the Graphene, you know, Novice Love and Games. Work on graphene is a, another controversy that I'm sure one day we will discuss. But that is just to frame how widely reported this has been. Yes. Um, it is definitely a flashpoint generally in media, uh, stories like this. Um, but it's... most of those articles uh, have focused on the implications of the title and have had very strong visceral reactions to it and haven't gone so much into dissecting the actual content so perhaps the first thing to do is just to uh, break down what the paper's definition of anthropogenic mass actually is yeah um uh would you like to go ahead and uh, sure yeah so? so the anthropogenic mass uh it's framed as basically the human-made or artificial mass, so uh, covering anything which is the any mass on the planet which is the result of human activity. And the key uh, figures here, if it, you know, you, unfortunately, uh, nature has decided to put most of its articles behind a paywall, which a lot of people have been uh, arguing against. But currently, we can't do anything about it. But um, you can access this figure, I think, for free on the Nature website, the, the first yes. figure. So figure one here shows um, the comparison between the anthropogenic mass and the biomass. And uh, usefully, the anthropogenic mass is broken down into different sectors. So we have uh, things like plastics and metals and bricks construction materials essentially that have been used to create buildings or create products that we consume but it's very noticeable when you look at this graph that the two by far the two biggest contributors over 80 percent in fact of the total anthropogenic mass currently is made up by aggregates uh now it's not there's not too much detail given as to what 
aggregates uh, comprise, but one of the examples given is gravel. Yes. So I think we're we're assuming that these are basic construction materials that are minimally processed. The other, by far the largest contribution to anthropogenic mass, is coming from uh, concrete. So when you look at this and you see bricks, aggregates, concrete and asphalt are the vast majority of this anthropogenic mass, it's clear that what we're really measuring here are buildings and the global roads network. Yes. That's the primary thing that we're measuring. And it should be pointed out that, you know, it's when you're trying to estimate things, you need something to go on. And things like an estimate of the surface area of roads on the mm-hmm. planet is something, it's a classic estimation problem, right? Um, where, uh, and similarly, you know, the amount of concrete, which is uh, is currently, you know, entombed in, in buildings mm-hmm. um, is something which you can estimate. Uh, however, more esoteric things such as, say, for example, uh, tilled earth um, in farmland or, um, you know, the uh, fencing uh, that, 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 that borders said farmland are, are far more difficult uh, to estimate. Yeah. And indeed, that, that touches on two really important points. One is how we tackle waste in this metric, because according to the way that this has been calculated, um, building waste so materials that have been used to 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 build something and that building has since been abandoned or demolished is not really counted in this metric there is um a second figure which attempts to estimate the the anthropogenic waste mass but that is primarily tackling um things that can easily be measured as having been thrown away so things like uh discarded plastics for example discarded uh consumer goods it's not so much yes. dealing with construction materials which are primarily captured by this anthropogenic mass so so in in this basis if i build something and that's later abandoned or demolished according to this metric that processed mass stays in the anthropogenic mass so even if I build a house out of bricks and then I smash that house to pieces until it's nothing but dust, that mass that I've processed into bricks, that clay, which, you know, I haven't done anything to change that. I haven't chemically processed it. All I've done is press it and fire it into a brick. But if I smash that brick up, it remains in that anthropogenic mass. Yes. And this is a huge problem because... While it is absolutely clear that the human impact on the planet and human land use has increased exponentially, we can't, in this metric, deconvolute the the simple act of uh, compounding our consumption. So, so if I process one brick every year and I simply calculate the total number of bricks that I've made year upon year upon year, I will get a steady increase a linear increase in the number of bricks that I have, even if every time I make one brick, I'm putting one back into the into circulation. That's right. Essentially, it doesn't take into account recycling. Exactly. Uh. Yeah, exactly. Which is a huge problem. Um, but you touched on another really important problem there, because what I'm saying there is essentially that I think that it's overemphasizing the impact of construction materials, but also it's underestimating the actual impact of certain activities that we know are hugely damaging, like yes. farming. 
because I think that's you made that's... that point there. Sorry, you you go. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Yeah, that's that's the point I was trying to make is that there are far more important things. It's not so much a problem of the things that they are including that shouldn't be included as much as it is the things that they're not including which should be included. Indeed. I mean, take something like topsoil erosion, which we know is a huge, huge problem, especially in the US at the moment. And that the soil that's tilled and is then eroded, that is a, a critical resource that's being lost through human activity because it, it's fertile soil that is essentially being destroyed. But that isn't counted here because the tilled earth isn't being counted under processed mass. That's right. And and I would argue that uh, in terms of the destruction of the biosphere and uh, the, uh, the de-diversification of animal life on this planet, um, the farming and the conversion of natural habitats into farmland um, is one of the primary drivers. Indeed. And therefore, you know, excluding it from your metric by which you are trying to show that human impact is reaching a stage at which it is untenable... Uh, is faulty at best. Indeed. And to bring it to, to, to mention again also this overemphasizing of construction materials, that really is almost an irrelevant, I'm not totally irrelevant, but it's it's almost a totally irrelevant metric. Because ultimately, if you take resources like uh, stone, like sand, uh, aggregates like gravel, and you process them into construction materials, what's impacting the natural world is not the fact that you've taken those resources and you've structured them into a building it's the mining practices you know the 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 quarrying that's what creates the impact if you if you were to create a a perfect you know a single shaft mine where the surface impact is almost nil and you mine out vast amounts of stone using low impact methods that that don't destabilize the Uh, ecosystem around the mine and you extract billions of tons of rock and build a big tower the impact you've actually had on the biosphere is minimal yes you've created loads of anthropogenic mass but the materials that you're using it's not like you're depriving the biosphere of those materials because they weren't being used anyway that's right the impact is from the practices not the mass yeah so although i i feel like uh what they attempted to do here was a rather misguided attempt at alluding that, you know, the practice it like that essentially they're saying that we need to be creating less anthropogenic mass, and by doing so, we will reduce the impact of the practices by which those that mass is is extracted. Um, but you know, it's it's not a linear relationship. Uh, you know, in any, in any way between you know the 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 impact of these uh, these uh, these practices and the amount of mass which is coming out, uh, and therefore you know drawing conclusions about the the impact of such things from such a metric is 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 not really possible. Indeed, and I think that touches on one of my big problems with this paper specifically, but with a lot of discussion about climate change in general, is that the assumption tends to be. Um, if we just reduce consumption, we can solve the problem. And I don't actually think that's true. 
Because, yes, we could reduce the proportion of our consumption back to the level that we were at in 1950. But if we're still using terrible practices to have to maintain that level of consumption, it's still really damaging. And in fact, using sustainable methods, we could maintain a much higher level of consumption, potentially even maintaining our current standard of living, or better, in fact, yes, without having a major impact on the biosphere. And every paper, every discussion that comes out that basically makes this point of, well, there's just too many people and they eat too much, so there's just no way. There's there's no way of going forward apart from to make everybody poor and miserable and we'll all just eat turnips for the rest of our lives. Every time someone writes something that alludes to that idea, I'm not saying they say that specifically here, but it's, yes, I think in my opinion, it alludes to a similar uh, a similar philosophy it makes people less likely to get behind green uh green action yeah i think that's fair um, ultimately perhaps... the message i think that we need to be putting out to people and the message which i also believe i believe it but i also have studied it is that through reforming the global economy to be sustainable, we can not only maintain our current standard of living, we can actually improve it. Sorry, bit of a diatribe there. What were you going to say, James? I was just going to say perhaps we should talk about the other uh, side of this metric, uh, which is the biomass. Yeah, um, absolutely. So uh, here I feel is one of the uh, the really quite strange choices that they made in this paper, uh, uh, which is that they define the biomass to be well they they use the data from another paper mm-hmm. to get their quantity of biomass uh, and uh, in the original paper where this this number or this this value was derived um they excluded marine animals uh from the metric of the biomass now uh the the mass of marine animals as a proportion of the total mass of life on earth i mean i'm not going to try and come up with an exact number but it is significant shall we say uh and therefore excluding it uh means that you're not really comparing it to the total mass of bio of of of, of animals excluding humans on earth uh you know it's 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 to call it the biomass and trying to allude that it is the mass of all animals, which they seem to, uh, is is misleading at best. Yeah, it's very difficult to get clear information on exactly what the metrics were in this this original paper. So the the paper that they're referencing is um, was published in 2018, and it was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the USA, uh, and it's called the Biomass Distribution of Earth. Now, there are a, a lot of different things accounted for. It's a, it's a very extensive survey of Earth's biomass. But yes, one of the things that appears, at least, to be conspicuously absent is an attempt to accurately estimate uh, particularly marine microorganisms. I th- it may be that they've accounted for for macrofauna, things like whales or, or some fish. It's not quite clear. But certainly there doesn't seem to be attempts to account for um, microorganisms in the earth, especially things like uh, zooplankton and uh, 
um, cyanobacteria. And yes. after we discussed this point bef- beforehand, I went and did a, a lot of digging around to see if I could find accurate figures for the mass of those organisms. And I found huge variations. Some some estimates were putting the total mass of, of uh, marine uh, microorganisms as high as one teraton on their own which yes. would completely change the balance of this comparison others were putting much more conservative estimates at several gigatons which would not be completely uh, rebalancing this equation but would certainly uh, potentially double the 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 mass of animals accounted for in this equation yes now um... i mean there is something here that does make me very concerned because as you pointed out james that the mass you know the mass of uh, life in the oceans is enormous and um in uh figure three in this paper there's there's a sort of crude accounting of the different components of human and living biomass and in the living column we have animals which is coming in at four gigatons and this is showing some cartoons of a rabbit, an elephant, a bee, a fish, and a whale. Although, as we said, it's not clear that fish and whales are actually accounted for in the original survey, so it's questionable as to whether that should be there. And yes. that comes in at four gigatons. And then we have trees and sh- shrubs coming in at 900 gigatons, which doesn't make up the total mass that they put in the paper. But but also uh, terrestrial trees and shrubs in comparison to marine cyanobacteria my understanding and admittedly i'm not a biologist is that there is a a a larger amount of biological mass in the oceans than there is on land yes but i mean just by virtue of volume i mean you know there's just more place for it to be Um, and of course there are wide areas of the ocean that are biological deserts but uh searching for example for what one of the searches i did was just for um, a a density map of the earth showing the concentration of chlorophyll across the earth which which has been measured multiple times using using satellites uh, which essentially just measure the absorption of specific uh, solar wavelengths from from the surface of the earth and you can see there that there are huge densities of cyanobacteria all across uh the Earth's major oceans, including very high densities of cyanobacteria all across the equator in the Pacific, accounting mm. for vast masses. And the the this, I think, illustrates the fact that these metrics are not well defined. And that's, I mean, you know, you can define a metric, uh, or you can you can try and come up with a quantity, and I think they go some way to addressing the uncertainty in their in the quantities to a certain degree, um, but the problem then, of course, is that they uh, they don't actually look in at the, the each quantity in isolation. They try and say, well, if we look at both of these quantities as a function of time, then the intersection point is. Well, twenty twenty plus or minus six years. Mm. Um, although, depending... in, although it has to be said that if you account for the error that they have on the biomass measurement, it's actually significantly more than plus minus six years. 
if, true. You, if you look at the confidence interval, the single standard deviation confidence interval that they supply in both figure one and figure two, the earliest possible intersection date is actually about 2001, and the latest possible intersection date is about 2040. Yes, that's right. Um, uh, which, and you know, there's nothing inherently wrong with comparing two uncertain quantities and, and coming up with some metric uh, which is in and of itself uncertain, as long as you assert those uncertainties uh, and take those uncertainties into account with your subsequent analysis, of course, which there isn't very much of mm. in this paper. Um, but I think we can go further and ask, uh, what is the purpose of comparing biomass to anthropogenic mass at all? Yeah. Um, you know, is there, like... Other than making a broad allusion to the fact that mankind is having an impact on the earth, uh, which we know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with drawing attention to that once more. Um, but it seems odd coming up with a number, 2020 plus or minus N years, uh, because when you do something like that, you're trying to... Uh, uh, make some quantitative analysis of like you, you need to be able to draw conclusions from that number and i guess the conclusion they're trying to say here is that it's time is critical and that the, the crossover point has come now um but as we've we've made clear that crossover point is actually quite variable depending on the uncertainties of the quantities involved yeah um and furthermore i like they they by by making a direct comparison and by by uh, working out this crossover point they are in in a quantitative way they seem to be uh saying that in some sense one unit of mass of anthropogenic mass is equivalent to in some sense one unit of biomass yeah uh, in a in a quantitative way but as as I think is clear to the listener, there's not it's not really very easy to 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 describe in any meaningful way how one unit of biomass is equivalent to one unit of anthropogenic mass. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think I think one of the critical questions that we should be asking on scrutinizing this paper is why is anthropogenic mass bad? What what is negative about it? You know, because that the if if I'm going to put on you know my good faith hat, then I would say that this paper is here because the authors are working in this new field that they they sort of say has has been coined relatively recently, which is called um, mass balance accounting. Mass balance accounting, and they're putting together you know the first comprehensive study in this field and. That's fine. But they can't have gone into this unaware of the cachet that a title like this has. No, agreed. And it clearly uh. seems to imply that this buildup of anthropogenic mass is bad and we should be concerned about it. So the key question to ask is, why is the anthropogenic mass bad? Yes. Now, we can point to things like plastics and we can say the buildup of plastic in the oceans is a bad thing. The, the erosion of plastic into microplastics, which accumulate in the organs of animals and can toxify soil, is a bad thing. But That's if you right. look at these figures, the, the actual mass of the plastic here is a tiny sliver. 
in comparison to the total anthropogenic mass. That's not to downplay the impact of plastic. It's very, very bad that we have such a huge accumulation of plastic. But it's not being accounted for properly. Its impact is not being accounted for just by measuring its mass. Whereas I would argue that building a city that's full of concrete is not that bad. Concrete... You know, it, it, to 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 most organisms, it's very similar to stone. Plants can grow on it. It can be broken down by natural weathering processes. It doesn't produce that many toxic byproducts. If I so, may, sorry, sorry, uh, yeah, just to interject. Uh, the uh, I think uh, concrete might be a bad example. And again, I'm no expert on construction or concrete, but I'm fairly certain that. Uh, the setting of concrete, the chemical process by which concrete sets, releases quite a significant amount of carbon dioxide, and therefore is actually does actually have a direct impact on climate change. Um, but uh, but you, your point is valid. Um, it's in, in in all other respects. That's a very good point, though. That it's important to to be reminded of that. Yes, that the actual construction process for concrete is is quite damaging. I suppose my point was more that if the concrete is is built, we unlike plastics where once it's discarded it builds up in the oceans and it forms microplastics if you build something out of concrete and then it decays its decay can be not harm less but at least low impact yes that's correct um, um, and, and, I, I, and i sorry i just want no, to uh, your point about the uh, plastics um uh you know the the impact of plastics uh, not being properly conveyed by the metric of anthropogenic mass um, uh, 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 is problematic. But I feel also, uh, and, and as you pointed out in the in the diagram in Figure One of uh, this paper, the anthro- the 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 other in inverted commas, which is the plastic and everything else uh, category, um, is a tiny sliver on the on the very top of this, um, I can't remember what it's called, the type of graph where you have segments like this, but, um, uh, uh, and therefore, not only does the metric not uh, take into account the severity of the secondary and tertiary processes by which plastic can be sort of, integrate itself into the biosphere and and cause problems, um, but the paper itself is is not fully uh, attributing the the negative impact uh, of plastics hmm. uh, sorry not attributing it's not fully uh, representing capturing. capturing the negative impact of plastics by virtue of the fact that it's considered in this inverted commas other character category yeah. because it makes up such a proportion of this metric of anthropogenic mass yeah indeed and i mean i would argue perhaps you know i'm not a conservation scientist i'm not a climate scientist I, i'm i'm a physicist but studying things at the level of fundamental physics can can give you a certain sort of um, wider perspective sometimes, not to be arrogant about it. But but one of the things I find useful to think about is, you know, why are the processes that we're engaging in, why is the way we structure our economy so damaging to the environment? It's, it's not necessarily an inherent thing. It's not as if every activity that humans partake in is necessarily bad because we're humans and we're, you know, somehow not natural. Yes, it's because we do specific things that have specific impacts. Plastic isn't bad just because it's made by humans. It's bad because it's made from the products of 
oil that has undergone anaerobic uh, decay and therefore contains these toxic byproducts and it doesn't decay through natural decay modes and 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 so it remains there for long periods of time there's lots of arguments as to as to why plastic is bad but it has to do with the specific composition of it if we if we were to restructure human activity to de-emphasize or, or to move away from these damaging practices, the fact of human activity itself is not always bad. No, no, that's And right. that, that seems to be what this kind of metric implies. It's just sort of, well, this mass has been touched by human hands and is therefore bad, whereas this mass, which is natural, isn't bad. And one of the things that I find so frustrating here is this, this biomass, this you know, the, the anthropogenic mass is broken down into these categories. The biomass is just given as this this sort of one flat line, which is then um, the only place where they really expound the, the details of what it contains is in the methods section, where they talk a bit about the estimates, and in this sort of slightly cartoony uh, breakdown. But they don't really go into the details of it, except to say that their biomass calculation contains farm animals. Yes, and the fact that it's being included, I mean, you know, to, really, you need to have another category, which is anthropogenic biomass. Exactly. Um, why, why are chickens that have a demonstrable negative impact and are a monoculture and take up vast amounts of, of land and, and cattle as well, they're all included under, under this biomass heading. Now, if you take this, you know, completely at face value and you just sort of say, well, these authors are doing this big meta-analysis about you know, the, the makeup of, of the earth, then that's fine. You can say, well, chickens are biological, so they go under biomass. But under this kind of wider philosophical statement that we're at this tipping point, it, it seems nonsensical to do that. And it seems like the, the metric is very arbitrary. Yes, I think that's really the watchword of the, uh, the paper, is arbitrary. Yeah, I mean, another thing that they've done in the biomass calculation is they've elected to use the dry biomass. Now, that's basically the mass if you were to take all the biological organisms on the planet and desiccate them and remove all the water, what you would be left with. Now, to be fair, it does seem like a lot of papers in this field focus on dry biomass, so it may simply be a matter of course for this field. Yes. But notably, if you use the wet biomass, so containing water, uh, the total mass of organisms on the planet almost doubles. And the intersection yes. point, using the extrapolation of that graph, doesn't occur until 2037, which makes for a yes, much less you... exciting headline. Yes, that's right. So I guess at this point we should uh, identify if there are any conclusions that they, uh, the authors draw uh, from this, this uh, discovery that they have made that uh, these two quantities which they have picked uh, intersect at the year... 2020 plus or minus six years um and uh uh you know uh, what 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 yeah what what meaningful uh, uh conclusions they can draw well that is the the 1.2 teraton question i mean one of the problems with this paper is conclusions are very very thin on the ground uh other than the fact that these masses intersect in the year 2020 and that's frightening there isn't a great deal of discussion, and um, I find that very problematic because it sort of is just making this kind of general statement that 
we're at this crossover point and this is in some sense bad. Yes. And and it offers very little in terms of wider context. And I think you and I, we both discussed a lot of more interesting questions that we would have loved to have seen asked of this data. This data set is incredible, the amount of data that's contained here, the summary of all mass, well, not all mass, but, but all processed mass on the planet, is it this incredibly rich data set. And the question that they've asked of it is incredibly yes, surface right. level and pointless. And I'm, I don't know, I mean, what, what do you think would be, if you had access to this data yourself, what would you try to, to well, find I out mean, with it? Well, I mean, the first thing that came to mind was um, rather than trying to come up with some arbitrary intersection, try and study anthropogenic mass in isolation. So try and understand, for example, uh, if you do some nonlinear regression, uh, what the critical exponent is. So that's just, you know, the rate at which it's increasing effectively. Um, and, uh, and, and that just hasn't even been considered as a, uh, as, a, as, as a question. Now, it's possible that they elected not to do that because for whatever reason, the data didn't exist. I haven't studied the data set in detail myself. Um, however, I feel like if you're looking for uh, a quantity which is going to uh, inform people as to the rate at which, um, you know, this quantity is increasing and therefore, you know, how concerned we should be, um, you know, a more traditional regression analysis of the data uh, would have been perhaps not as eye-catching, but certainly uh, more effective. Yeah, indeed. And the the efforts to sort of extrapolate the data forward are very limited and mainly just use a kind of linear extrapolation. And from that, it's very difficult to get any, as you say, any more complex projections that can tell us, for example, you know, is the rate of anthropogenic mass generation increasing or decreasing? Are certain sectors uh, increasing their dominance or decreasing yes. their dominance? You know, for example, is the uh, the rate at which new concrete is being created, uh, is that growth exceeding the rate at which new plastics are being created? We're, we're obviously, at the moment as a society, globally, trying to focus on tackling plastic waste. Is that having any effect? And can we see that in the data? Yes, that would be interesting. And one of the questions I'd really like to see from this is basically a flow diagram to, to break down some of the critical resources on Earth and try to show whether uh, resources that used to be primarily consumed by biological mass have mm. been diverted into anthropogenic mass, because that to me is one of the key questions. If we have, um, I don't know, certain organic molecules or, or, or certain minerals that are critical to life on the planet and we can show clearly that they're being diverted into artificial construction we can identify that as a you know a critical point where the consumption of a certain resource is switching from being primarily biological yes. into anthropogenic and you can immediately extrapolate from that the impact that it would have on the diversity yeah of that life would be a Earth. really interesting uh, uh, thing to study but unfortunately, none of that has been done here, which leaves us rather frustrated. And um, the yeah. um, I feel at this uh, point, I mean, yeah, there's there's really nothing else to say about the conclusions that that the uh, 
that the authors draw um, from the data which they have because the metric that they've defined is largely uninteresting. Um, uh, so I guess that brings me to question or the question of if we assume that uh, the authors were acting in good faith, which I think they probably were, um, why did they decide to uh, study what they did um, uh, uh, and uh, rather than perhaps something which could have yielded more enlightening results? It's a difficult question to answer with the caveat of assuming they're acting in good faith. Um, but one of the things that I think is clear from a paper like this is how big an impact certain types of results and certain types of discussions can have on public discourse. I mean, something like what you were discussing about performing a regression analysis or what I was discussing about looking at the flow of resources, that is a really big job. It takes a lot of meta-analysis of the preceding works and it requires coming up with entirely new models to map the materials flows. It's, it would yes. take a long time. Now, a, st a study like this is essentially taking data that has been compiled in other publications and kind of replussing it, repackaging it to show it in a more easily understandable light, which yeah. is not a bad thing. It's a, it's a good idea to take complex data and reduce it to a form uh, that can show things that might be hidden in a large mm. and complex data set. But I think one of the key points here is that this is not a paper that was published in the proceedings of a conference on anthropogenic mass. This is not a paper which was published in a moderate impact journal that, you know, bills itself as being a discussion of existing data. This is a headline paper, a, a front cover paper. I don't know if it actually had the front cover, but... Um, judging by the amount of traffic it's got, uh, it, it could well have been a front cover paper in Nature. The the highest circulation... Uh, is the Lancet higher? I'm not sure. It's certainly one of the three highest circulation academic journals in the world. And ultimately, that comes down to the title, in yes, my opinion. I think that's right. But, I mean, I guess you're... The... Uh, it's worth highlighting the fact that um, such papers, which are, I think, it's not unreasonable to say, are promoting themselves by having titles which are, for lack of a better word, provocative. Um, uh, there's not really anything wrong with what they are... If, if what they were trying to do was inspire movement on... The, the 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 by people by people on this planet to changing the way that we impact the world and they the way they decided to do that was to uh, construct this metric and publish a paper in a high the highest impact journal in the world uh, to create a conversation about um, the topic which they're obviously trying to uh, talk about there's nothing really wrong with that inherently from a from a motivation perspective. However, the concern I think that you and I have, Tim, is that 
the the work that they did is when you dig down into it not particularly enlightening and therefore when in fact there there were other questions i mean not just the questions that we've come up with i guarantee you there are more uh, which escape us uh, but people who are former more familiar with the field would be able to come up with um which would be more interesting to look at and would would provide greater insight yeah. and perhaps you know point towards ways in which we can be uh, uh, actually affecting change uh, and this paper i mean you know media exposure is not a zero-sum game but you know it took up uh, uh you know the the news cycle that it did um with data and 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 research which isn't particularly useful indeed and i think maybe this is a point where we have to give a very brief summary of how academics actually measure their careers how how they keep their jobs because academics i know you know you're you're a fully paid up member of society now james yeah and you've left the bubble but the the thing is that that academics we don't create generally saleable products we we do not have an easy financial metric to determine whether our work is valuable or not so how we do it is how how we determine whether someone is actually performing well or not is by assessing their impact and i've said that word probably like 10 times throughout this conversation without defining it but but impact in academic circles has a very strict definition it is basically how much your work is read in your field how many people base their work on your work um and how much your work shapes the field in yeah. which you are performing your research and the primary way obviously you know what i've just described there is about as fuzzy as it gets there's no easy way of defining any of those things but so the, the primary way academics measure their impact yeah. is by the journals that they publish in so if you publish 20 papers in but you know but they're all in small conference proceedings journals that are only read by a handful of people you will struggle to find your way into top jobs and you will struggle to get your research funded if you're publishing an article a year or an article every few years in a journal like nature you can rocket yourself to the top of your field and really take control over the direction that not just your research but also the direction other people's research That's will right. have for and decades to come. I think what you're what you're driving at is that therefore uh, it is incentivized for you to write papers that are likely to be picked up by large journals and more 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 I guess you know what you didn't mention is that not only do you need to publish them in high impact journals but they need to get cited a lot of times by other scientists. Um, and, mm -hmm. you know, the, the best way to do that is to make sure that you are dealing with a topic which is uh, popular, effectively. Um, and I think really this paper hits all of those notes is that it is uh, in a high impact journal. Um, it is obviously got a lot of profile uh, and I have absolutely no doubt will be cited many times largely 
due to the fact that other people are going to attempt to do published papers on similar topics because of the fact that it is obviously such a flashpoint for focus by news organizations or, or, or whoever it may be. So it kind of creates a feedback loop almost. Yeah, and I'm, I'm going to get a little bit grumpy old man here. I'm going to try to restrain myself a little bit. But I think what you're identifying there is the way that the... I'm not going to say the economics, because the economics of academic publishing is a whole separate debate. But perhaps the, 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 um, the social aspect, the, the environment of academic publishing has changed so much in the last 20 years. Part of the, the motivation of that, I think, is the way in which the public engage with science has changed, and in many ways for the better. So reading articles about real cutting-edge academic research is so much more popular now than it was even 20 years ago. You know, there are, there are whole uh, channels on YouTube, there are entire... Uh, websites there are podcasts vast amounts of podcasts indeed that are entirely devoted to a love of science and that's wonderful it's so fantastic that science is no longer something that people think is only done by people in lab coat lab coats who wear coke bottle glasses you know it, it's great that science has become this mainstream touchstone but one of the side effects of that is that academic publishing takes has taken on a lot of the pitfalls of social media yes i think that's right yeah and if if you obviously this doesn't apply to everybody but there is definitely a trend where if you can tap in to something that is going to set a trend something that's going to go viral which this paper arguably has then you can almost bypass the traditional checks and balances that exist on scientific endeavor and publish work that will have a massive impact, even if it's not actually up to the standards to which it w- such work would usually be held. Yes, um, that's right. And I think it, it, it creates, again, um, a feedback loop for the individual, not only for the particular topic, uh, in that the higher impact you are as a scientist the more likely you are to be able to be allocated funding which in turn allows you to publish more papers um, and the more papers you have well this isn't always true but assuming that you understand the system the more papers you have the more likely you are to have a higher impact uh, as a scientist and and further get more get more funding which is is not really the way you want things to go if if you want the system to be structured in a way that incentivizes uh, good science. You, you desperately need in science, resources are limited. Resources in science are always limited uh, because they're provided by the public. And, you know, so that you can't just find a technology, I'm saying it like that's easy, but even if you were to find a technology that was transformative and you were to publish on it, you can't make a business out of that because your research is publicly funded and, and ultimately it's publicly owned, or at least that's what I believe, not all yes. scientists would agree. It should be. Um, yeah. And so resources are always going to be tight and there's a need, a desperate need to prioritise who gets those resources. You You need to make sure that people are getting resources who are doing good research but there's a tendency to assume 
that the metrics, the very shallow, very flawed metrics that are used to measure impact are all one needs to best assign public resources. And that is simply not true. You, you have no. people who are incredibly adept at getting their papers published in the top journals because they just, they know the game. And that's not to say that they're fraudsters. The science is accurate. The science is, is generally correct. A, a paper doesn't get published in Nature if it's total bullshit. At least, well, I mean, they have at times, but it's not common for that to happen. Um, no. But the, sometimes the difference between a, a particular research topic being published in Nature or being published in, you know, the the journal of the conference of, I don't know, whatever, uh, can mm. simply be the name of the first author. And it's got nothing to do yes. with the content of the paper. Yes, that's right. I think um, we should draw our conversation to a close. Yeah, probably, before I the, get myself um, in too much trouble. <laughs> That's okay. Um, the uh, all in all, I thought that this paper, the the analysis that it that it actually performed, it performed reasonably well. Um, you know, they did indeed calculate the errors in the quantities sort that they of, were yeah. were studying, sort of. Uh, although, you know, the de- as we've discussed, the definitions of the quantities involved were lacking should we say um and the conclusions drawn from the paper were non-existent yeah. really because there are no um, conclusions that you can draw from this because the metric doesn't mean anything exactly I mean, you know one of the quick sort of back of the envelope calculations i did when i first read this was to look at what the authors of this paper say the total mass of all the matter on the surface of the earth is which is, is 2.4 teratons and I did a quick calculation to see uh, what the actual um, density of matter was on the surface of the Earth. And I excluded the ocean because, as far as I could tell, they also excluded marine mammals. So on the basis of this, just, on, just from the surface area of the Earth, both artificial and biological matter would have a density of about 14 kilograms per meter square, which is just enough to have a one centimeter deep layer of soil and concrete and bricks over the landmass of the earth which is yeah, clearly uh... not right that that estimation shows that there's something deeply wrong here and and what's deeply wrong with it are all the things that we've mentioned it's not including soil it's not including um dead matter it's only including living biomass not dead biomass it's not including water. It's not including uh, other types of anthropogenic activity which can manipulate the mass on the Earth without explicitly generating something artificial. It's just full of holes, and it doesn't represent the biosphere of Earth as it actually exists. Yep. That's an accurate summary. So, yeah, I guess... It's completely That's understandable it. if you're reading this headline that you would be freaked out, and you should be freaked out about climate change. It is fucking scary. I'm not, I'm not supposed to say fucking. It is very scary. But this paper is not implying that we're on the brink of a Blade Runner future. No. No, I think that's that's definitely not the conclusion that we can draw and from And to frame study. climate change in those terms 
it actually undermines action on the problem rather than enhancing it. Yes. Cool. Cool. That is a wrap. A a soy soy delicious seaweed wrap. Tasty wrap. If I wrap myself in seaweed, is that artificial mass or biomass? It makes you want to get it. That's what it makes you. (laughs) 